Our speaker today is uh, James King, who is the lead designer at Science Practice Limited, and uh, he's here to talk to us about designing biotechnology. Uh, he'll speak for about an hour or so, and then we'll take questions after that. Since this is not a, uh, one of our usual philosophical uh, papers, we don't have a respondent, but I hope you'll uh, still have questions uh, for James after the talk. Please join me in welcoming uh, James King. Thanks very much for having me here. Um, I'm honoured to be able to talk to you about my work and uh, especially the work in the field of biotechnology. Um, and I hope you find some connection to it. Um, I'm a speculative designer, which is an unusual job title. Um, but rather than trying to find that, I'll just show you some projects and uh, then talk a bit more generally about what I do. Um, so I run a small design studio called Science Practice. Um, and through this I collaborate with various scientists and social scientists around the UK. Um, and the aim of the studio is to build a role for design as a way of augmenting scientific methods and practices. So this is the, the first project. And I did this actually as a, a, a graduate student at the Royal College of Art in about 2006. So it's quite old work now. So there's a real technology that allows us to take a small sample of animal tissue just a few cells, and encourage it to grow separate from the original animal's body to form an edible piece of meat. This is known as in vitro cultured meat, or IVM, but some people also call it victimless meat. So let's imagine a future where IVM is successful at an industrial scale and becomes the most cost-effective, the highest quality, and most humane way of producing our meat. And then let's ask a few questions. What will be different about this meat? What size will it be if it's no longer limited by the size of any animal? What shape will it have if it's no longer limited by the anatomy of any animal? How much will it cost and who will buy it? Would we be happy eating something that looked as unappetizing as this? <laughs> well, perhaps not. Perhaps a particularly enterprising chef of tomorrow will become bored by the formless, shapeless food and will strive to add authenticity to his creations. He does his research and learns about these historical animals called cows, he becomes excited by old textbooks with false-colour illustrations of their anatomy, such as these cross-sections through a cow's stomach. He selects the parts he finds most interesting, so not the boring bits we eat today, but the more intricate and beautiful patterns found in the abdomen and the brain. He makes a mould into which he can grow the cell cultures into a steak, and serves the results in his restaurant to an appreciative clientele, who are also hungry for more authentic form of meat and willing to pay for it. So when I first heard about this technology, it was pretty disgusting. Um, it sounded like something from a David Cronenberg movie. But then I thought a bit more about it, and I came to realize that perhaps the gut reaction that I had initially wasn't the right reaction at all. And instead, I should try and take a, a more measured approach to it. I wanted to design something which was just palatable enough to consider eating it, but didn't kind of normalize the technology in any way. I also wanted to hint at the different relationships we'd have with our, uh, the food and with livestock. And by creating these tangible objects that embody a particular vision of the future, it becomes possible to uh, judge their desirability. So, for example, a debate about whether biotechnological meat is good or bad can become more nuanced. And you get to ask all sorts of new sorts of questions, like, how much should it cost? Does it look appetizing? And would you want to eat it? The tangibility of the work also allows it the possibility to travel through the media and uh, to reach more people. So this is the March 2008 issue of Wired magazine. And the thing I like about it is that the, the project is next to an advert for Head and Shoulders. <laughs> um, 
So none of that was real, what I showed you. I mean, the, the, the technology is real, and the first image is real. It's a, a project by an artist called Oren Katz, um, who's a, um, the first person to uh, grow and culture a steak and eat it. And it's interesting that he's an artist and not a biotechnologist or a scientist. Um, and the work that I did allowed me to, to meet him and uh, to attend one of his workshops that he runs for kind of aspiring artists and designers like myself. Um, and in this workshop, we learned a variety of lab techniques, such as how to extract our own DNA, uh, how to cultivate bacteria, and how to genetically modify it. Um, so this is bacteria that we injected with a jellyfish gene to make them uh, fluoresce under UV, uh, ultraviolet light. And what was interesting for me was how easy this was. All you needed were the right chemicals, a hot water bath, a bucket of ice, and you could do it in about 10 minutes. <coughs> to learn how lab equipment works, we built our own. So this is a DIY incubator made out of a solarium for reptiles. And lastly, we learned how to culture living cells. So this is the same technique used to create the edible meat that I showed you at the beginning. And having spent a short time working with uh, real tissue, I can report that it's incredibly difficult, uh, both technically and ethically. Um, so whereas genetic engineering I found to be uh, much easier, um, actually dealing with, with, with cell cultures like this was much more difficult. And I would have assumed, with, with little understanding of it, that it would be the other way around. Um, so as these technologies get nearer, I think it's increasingly important to engage them with them on their own terms. So rather than being a designer working in a studio, I decided that I really wanted to start collaborating with scientists um, at the kind of the cutting edge. So what can I do as a designer in the world of science? Traditionally, design is considered to be an applied art, just as the same uh, as engineering is uh, considered to be an applied science. Um, but what happens when designers engage with scientists? What sort of interactions can they be, and how can they be useful? Over the last two years, I've been involved in the field of synthetic biology. Um, there might be a few people here who don't know what this term is, so I'm going to explain it very quickly. Um, this is a painting by a molecular biologist called David Goodsell. Um, it, it's a picture of a section of an E. coli bacteria, and the coloured blobs are individual molecules, proteins and, and DNA. Synthetic biologists want to use the molecules and processes found inside the cell to do something useful for us, like manufacture fuels or medicines. At the heart of synthetic biology is a, a strong analogy between established forms of engineering and genetic engineering. A cell is like a computer, its genes and proteins are like components of a cell, a, a circuit, from which you can build standardised genetic parts that perform a particular function. These standardised components are called biobricks, and they're stored in this refrigerator at, at MIT. Um, biobricks are small standardised pieces of DNA that can be joined together to form devices that are introduced into bacteria. And here's an example of, of the sorts of processes that you can establish in, in cultures of bacteria. It's not very clear, but um, this is a, a petri dish measuring about, uh, about that sort of size. Um, and on it is spread a lawn of uh, E. coli bacteria that have been genetically engineered so that when they're um, exposed to light, they'll produce a black pigment. And um, effectively, the, the system behaves like a photographic film. It's not very efficient. It's not as quick as photographic film, but still it does behave like it. Sorry? Who is the picture? Sorry. I'm not sure. I should find it out. Um, but the, these are the people that are uh, designing these sorts of systems and contributing these biobricks to the registry. Um, they're students that compete in the International Genetically Engineered Machines Competition, which happens every year um, at uh, MIT. And there are about 1,000 people there, um, including faculty and students. They're formed into about 100 teams from universities around the world. The majority of them are undergraduates. 
And in 2009, I was lucky enough to be involved with a collaboration with the Cambridge University iGEM team, alongside fellow designer Daisy Ginsberg. Um, back in June 2009, Professor Jim Hasloff of Cambridge University invited us to join his students uh, to kind of partake in a crash course in synthetic biology. What's interesting about the field is that there are no real established um, university courses, um, or there weren't at least in 2009. And all of the students that take part in the competition come from uh, disciplines like mechanical engineering, physics, maths, um, genetics. None of them study synthetic biology. And that was great for us because it meant that when they were taught, we could follow along with them because everyone was learning from the, the base level. So despite not having a background in science, you know, I went to art school, um, I, could, I could follow along and so could my collaborator, Daisy. After the end of that kind of two-week process, the students decided what they wanted to, to design for the competition. And um, this is an image of it. Uh, they wanted to produce different strains of E. coli bacteria that produce different coloured pigments which are visible to the naked eye. And this is an example of the kind of the end stage of their research here. Um, so I'm now going to show a short film which describes why this technology might be useful. Why would you want bacteria to produce different coloured pigments? Joining us now is one of the winners of the iGEM competition. Welcome to Science Friday, Ms. Mullen. Hi, thank you so much. Well, I'm part of the Cambridge 7 and 9 iGEM team, and our product is called eChromoi. And what we were trying to do is to improve bacterial biosensors. They're bacteria um, that can tell you the concentration of a pollutant in water. And they can do this because inside them they have a detector. So we developed um, two different parts, the sensitivity tuner, and this actually tells the detector when to turn on and when to turn off. So you have control over um, what level of the pollutant you're detecting. And how does the bacteria show that it's on or off? We use something called a color generator, which means that bacteria changed color when the detector got switched on. Wow, so they light up in a different color. They actually change color that's visible to the naked eye. So let's say if you put a swab of the bacteria in the polluted river, bacteria would just change color. Yes, exactly. So you probably want to put a sample of your water on a bacterial plate, maybe not the other way around. <laughs> well, how would you envision something like this being used other ways in the future? So, the question, how would you envisage this being used in other ways in the future? Um, so this, the students have designed the system, and they had this pretty um, sophisticated uh, application in mind. They would uh, take samples of this bacteria, they would engineer it so it was sensitive to something like arsenic, and um, they would then have a system which you could take anywhere in the world, and it wouldn't need any extra technology. And you could test uh, water that you might be worried about um, to see if it contained kind of excess quantities of, of heavy metals, um, something which is potentially quite useful. But obviously, uh, once you have that system, it's potentially more useful than that, and there are lots of other ways that other people might be using it. So Daisy and I were both fascinated by this technology of bacterial colour, and we saw two general areas of application. Um, colour use as an end product, uh, like a dye or food colouring, and colour uh, use as a sort of a signalling uh, kind of mechanism, such as in the biosensor example that I've just explained. But really, we're interested in the implications of it, and um, we wanted to imagine how this technology might impact society in a, a kind of a broader way. So rather than designing more applications, we designed um, groups of people that might base their livelihood on the technology, um, products and services which are how people might buy and consume it, and then, so, and then laws which might be needed to regulate it in some way. So we placed these design proposals on a timeline stretching uh, about 100 years into the future, 
Uh, they begin quite modestly, so um, we start in 2009 with a kind of a factual statement that technology exists, and then they become a bit wild as we go on. Um, so by 2010, we might have the, sorry, by 2011, now, we might have the first commercially available arsenic biosensor, um, which is capable of testing groundwater. Um, by 2015, there might be a new profession of people whose job it is to scour the biosphere, uh, looking for new pigments and bringing the genes responsible back for use in the food and textile industry. By 2029, we have small microfluidic devices um, with arrays of E. coli bacteria on them, which respond to an enormous number of chemical signals, effectively becoming a test for any chemical you would care to, to test for. Um, I'll come back to this one. Um, but in 2069, uh, the biotech arm of Google releases pollution mapping bacteria into the atmosphere that turn red in the presence of excess CO2. And as the saying goes, red sky in the morning, Google health warning. <laughs> the bacteria recognize no national borders and a major diplomatic incident ensues when they enter Chinese airspace. By 2099, we have total ambient sensing. Color is no longer used as a means of decoration. Instead, it's on every surface, constantly relaying information to us. So these were sketches in a way. They were very short, very quick um, to illustrate. And we just presented them to the team kind of halfway through the process of their project. And having done that, we um, opened up a suitcase containing lots of uh, bits of um, junk that we really found lying around the studio and asked them to, to spend the afternoon constructing their own prototypes or props from the future. And uh, they had to come back in a couple of hours and give a performance to us to explain what they'd done. This is what they came up with. Uh, so in 2019, uh, one team uh, cast themselves as food scientists from the near future. Um, and this is a batch of seaweed that they genetically modified to express a red pigment that they would then extract and use in food. Uh, they took these onto the streets of Cambridge and uh, presented it to the public in a kind of very uh, quick guerrilla style. Um, and the people they talked to said they preferred the idea of genetically engineered food, uh, sorry, genetically engineered pigments over the chemical alternatives, which is maybe more a misconception about what chemicals are, but, but nevertheless it's, it's kind of an interesting uh, attitude towards uh, genetic engineering. Um, 2039 sees the rise of the Orange Liberation Front, which is the rarest of things. It's a, a terrorist organisation from the Netherlands. Um, and uh, they're angry because uh, the colour orange and its means of production has been patented by a biotech company and they can no longer wear the national football colour to support the national football team and must instead wear red and yellow close together um, so they've built a bomb um, and uh, the bomb uh, does not make it any bomb any people uh, it's filled with the antibiotic canamycin and uh, they'll explode it at London Fashion Week, destroying all the colour embedded in all the clothes, by, by which time it's all produced bacterially. Um, in 2089, um, Dr. James Brown, who's the first scientist to experiment with dynamic skin pigmentation, which is where the technology has moved from bacteria into people, um, he was unable to obtain ethical, ethical permission for uh, the first human trials of the technology, and he ended up experimenting on himself. Unfortunately, he, uh, decided he dyed himself a permanent purple, um, but gradually the technology matures and um, uh, the, the, the scientists that follow him sort of 10 years afterwards uh, gain more control over this, the pigmentation and the patterning of their own skin until eventually the technology reaches maturity. Um, this is Vivian and she's actually naked except you wouldn't realise it because she's expressing the appearance of clothing by carefully controlling the modulation and pigmentation of her skin. Um, so after the workshop, uh, we went back, the, the students went back to the hard grind of cloning, sequencing, pipetting, and doing all the things that um, lab uh, molecular biologists do, which is very hard work. Um, but they went back with a sense of how their work might connect to the world outside. Um, 
And meanwhile, Daisy and I decided to develop one of the design proposals a lot further because we thought it was a lot stronger than the others. So in 2049, um, the Scatalog is a medical application for cheap, personalised disease monitoring. You can buy it from the supermarket as a probiotic yoghurt drink. Suspended in the drink are granules containing <coughs> small numbers of E. chromite bacteria. Um, when ingested, the bacteria form a permanent colony in your, in your gut. Uh, they monitor for the uh, chemical signals that indicate the presence of a wide range of diseases. And if they detect a disease, um, they'll start generating corresponding coloured pigment. So if you uh, imagine the next step, um, if your poo changes colour, then you should probably go and see the doctor. Um, so it's important to mention now um, that while uh, we're both uh, fascinated by synthetic biology, um, we're also quite ambivalent about it. Um, is something like this a good or a bad thing? We don't really know. What was interesting was that, um, for us, that all of the imagery around synthetic biology, because essentially it's invisible, um, is, is, has been uh, made by the scientists and engineers um, that have come from other fields to be very similar to the sorts of things you'd see on the front of uh, car magazines, essentially. Um, so you see chrome-plated DNA or uh, cogs and gears inside cells. And um, those do get across the analogy of, of, of engineering, but... That's not the experience that it will um, be like to experience synthetic biology at the human scale. And uh, this, to us, this is a much more um, a realistic kind of proposal for, for how people will um, deal with it in their everyday lives. So we decided to take the, uh, this proposal to the IGEM Jamboree because we realised that the entire synthetic biology field would more or less be there. And we could have uh, lots of conversations with them about the, about it. So we filled the suitcase full of um, these, these coloured poo samples and um, ran around the competition talking to people. It's the, can I just reduce the lighting a little bit more? Yeah, hit the middle button. Is that okay? Um, so sometimes the reactions we got were sort of unfavourable. Uh, sometimes they're very enthusiastic. Um, we talked to many of the big names in the field. Uh, in the middle is Tom Knight, um, and on the, on the left is Peter Carr. And um, Tom Knight founded the Biobricks Registry. We even got to talk to the United Nations and, and FBI, who were there sponsoring the competition, because they're worried about bioterrorism. Um, and at each stage, we, we, we really had an opportunity to, to discuss um, people's visions for this nascent field and, and what they thought the future of it might be. Uh, meanwhile, the Cambridge students were competing in the main competition and they gave an excellent presentation, which was so good they won the entire thing, um, which was fantastic because um, they got a lot of press attention afterwards and when they got asked, you know, how will this technology affect people in the future, they had a kind of library of examples that they could kind of dish out. And the, the video I showed actually contained a radio interview which was um, played out on national public radio. Um, so this is what I think a designer like myself can do in the world of synthetic biology. Um, actually, it's really what synthetic biology is in itself. It actually contains design in it. Um, it doesn't actually need designers in there for that to be there. So traditionally, well, a, a synthetic biologist will, will get inspired by something that biology does naturally. And they'll see if they can take that system and, and use it in some way to design something. So in their heads, they have a, a, an imagined possibility of what this might be useful for. And then they'll go back into the lab and they'll try and make it and see if that plays out in biological reality again. So it's a sort of a closed loop. Outside of kind of the lab, there are public and scientific forums. And in order to communicate these um, imagined possibilities to those, then there's a storytelling process that can come about. 
And then feeding back from those forums, there's excitement, trepidation, money, that sort of thing. Um, and this is, for me, this is a really interesting way of working as a designer because while I thought the work I'd be doing would be completely public-facing, it's actually ended up informing other scientific groups more than, um, more than the public. So now this catalogue gets used inside the Wellcome Trust to um, explain synthetic biology to departments that haven't heard of it. And that, to me, is something which is very strange. Um, this is another project, which is a collaboration with a team of synthetic biologists, one of whom, uh, Ben Davis, has a lab here in Oxford. <coughs> Um, the team are attempting to create a living thing from unusual chemistries which aren't found in nature. Here you can see an example of one of their experiments. Um, it's not alive in a traditional sense, but it mimics a living system. Um, the team want to build more complex systems uh, with things like metabolisms, uh, reproductive capabilities, and the ability to react with natural cells. Um, and they call these systems chemical cells. The aim of this research is to understand how life emerges from matter, and what the vital characteristics of living things actually are. But this line of research has to overcome a problem. If, you, if you're building a new biology from scratch, how do you determine that the synthetic organisms you create are actually alive? <coughs> to overcome this problem, the team have proposed to design a test based on Alan Turing's um, test for artificial intelligence. So if the chemical cells pass the test, they're alive, and if they fail, then they're not. I'm not going to go into the details of the test, but um, I can afterwards if anyone's interested. Um, to me, it's obvious that it will be a long and difficult research project. There will be many attempts and experimental iterations to reach the point where it's possible to create an artificial living thing. Thinking about this research in this way, um, as essentially an iterative design process, um, it becomes clear that the distinction between non-living and living things begins to blur. So along the course of this research, the team will produce um, a series of artificial cells that could be considered to be alive to different degrees. I imagine that at the end of their research projects, the team would produce not only an artificial life form, but all more or less as a byproduct that have plotted a scale between non-living and living things. So instead of asking how some, whether something is dead or alive, you might instead ask how alive it is. In order to understand what the scale might be like, I wanted to design it with them. So, kind of different to the, the undergraduates that Daisy and I dealt with in the Ukraine project. Um, this is a team of four uh, senior professors from three different institutions around the UK. And it was difficult enough to get them into one room, let alone spend a whole, whole afternoon with them running a workshop and asking them to, to, to design um, anything like that. So I came up with a very simple proposal to have a piece of paper with um, dead on one end, alive on the other, and then a scale in between. And I asked them to plot the features of a living organism along the scale. <coughs> As, um, as depending on how um, lifelike those features were. And what's interesting was that they couldn't really do it. Um, this, this slide up here is to show you the sort of mess that, that kind of resulted from the conversations. Um, so, so here you have a light bulb, solar cells, um, the ability to manipulate energy, um, something about intelligence and stupidity, um, something about energy into conversion. It's a bit of a, a kind of a hodgepodge of different ideas. Um, here's another one which is, which is even, even more kind of difficult to understand and then I decided to change the question I said well rather than doing that um, instead tell me the research process that you'll go through in the next 10 years and that was much easier for them to do because they'd already thought about it um, so they said oh it's easy okay we'll start with inorganic building blocks um, then we'll work on energy releasing reactions then we'll uh, work on systems that um, catalyze each other um, then we'll try and nest those in some sort of membrane 
And once we can apply a selective pressure to those membranes, then we'll have something which we think is more or less alive because we'll have it evolving. So that seems much simpler to me. Um, I took all of that research material and conversations and designed this, which I call the cellularity scale. It's completely speculative. It's not really based on any research at all. Um, it's more or less come out of my, uh, my, my own mind. But, um, but on it are plotted five, uh, five features of a living organism which seem to be important. So at the bottom end, there's individuation, which is where you can point at something and say it's an it, rather than a soup of chemicals. Uh, metabolism, uh, replication, reproduction, which is where two, two chemical systems come together to produce the third. And finally, death. Um, so if you, if you can die, it means you must have been alive. Therefore, it's the final tick in the box on the scale for me. Um, and I made a film really describing the scale and putting it in... Um, it's set in the future, and uh, it describes how chemical cells were developed as a pharmaceutical technology over very many years, and I'll play it now. For over 200 years, the compressed tablet has been the preferred way of introducing medicine into the body. But when the tablet was replaced by the chemical cell, medicine changed, and so did our understanding of living things. The first true chemical cell approved for use in the healthcare industry is a simple construction. It is manufactured by forming an inorganic membrane around particles of a given drug compound. Only under specific conditions does the membrane become porous, releasing small amounts of the drug where it is required. Advances in metabolic engineering led to the second generation of chemical cells. Lying dormant inside the patient for several weeks, they monitor the condition of their surroundings. When triggered, they are capable of manufacturing a specific drug, releasing it as and when it is required. The third generation of chemical cells are equipped with the autocatalytic machinery necessary to replicate themselves. Useful for treating chronic conditions, they maintain a constant population in a patient over extended periods of time. By reproducing in pairs, the fourth generation of chemical cells bear offspring that combine the metabolic processes of both their parents. Often used when the patient's condition does not respond to a known compound, these offspring will produce novel varieties of drugs, some of which might have a positive effect. The fifth and most recent generation of chemical cells are characterized by one important additional feature. If these cells determine that the drug they are producing is ineffective, then they make themselves the target of the patient's immune system, which will treat the cell like any other pathogen, killing it. This ability to die subjects the chemical cells to a form of natural selection, allowing their evolution towards a more effective treatment of the patient's condition. The medicines described here represent key milestones in the development of chemical cell therapeutics, but they are also the increments on a scale between non-living and living things, a cellularity scale. This is used in the pharmaceutical industry to classify chemical cells for regulatory purposes. But we prefer to see it as the route to a new tree of life, the branches of which will doubtless bear the fruits of our future health and well-being. Um, which brings me to the end of the presentation. Thank you very much.